Hi, it's Ken White. And it's Josh Barrow, and this is Serious Trouble. Ken, this is a very exciting week for us because, you know, we always talk about how it's not RICO and no, this isn't RICO and no, the grounds in this legal dispute are not RICO. But this week, finally, we have a RICO lawsuit to talk about with some interesting action in it. Yes, and this week we have a judge saying that it's not RICO correctly in as big a way as you can imagine. (laughs) But isn't it RICO to file a RICO lawsuit when it's not RICO? No, it is not, Josh. That's not that RICO. That is not RICO. <laughs> no. That feels like RICO. It is, however, highly sanctionable okay. to file a RICO suit when it's definitely not RICO. So this is this is a lawsuit that Donald Trump brought against a few dozen different parties alleging a grand conspiracy to lie about him and his not real ties to Russia. Right. This is a suit that Trump filed uh, in federal court in Florida, claiming that Hillary Clinton was part of a RICO conspiracy with just about everyone else uh, you can imagine or would expect, uh, designed to conspire to manufacture the investigation of Trump's connections to Russia. And it was very imaginative (laughs) and uh, very much like just a transcript of a Tucker Carlson or or Sean Hannity show uh, ranting about things. Tucker would be more tightly edited than this. Yes, that's probably fair. (laughs) But so this lawsuit, this was dismissed a few months ago, and then there was one defendant in the lawsuit who moved for and received sanctions. And now this is a lot of other defendants who sought sanctions, and they've been awarded nearly a million dollars because of the misconduct of Donald Trump and his attorney. We previously talked about the the first sanctions order, and since it's relatively rare for federal judges to pull the trigger on sanctions orders, it was notable in his language uh, blasting Trump and his attorneys for this frivolous RICO suit was notable. But this uh, steps it up quite a bit. Judge Donald Middlebrooks of the Southern District of Florida uh, wrote this opinion. He had dismissed the case to begin with, and you can get a flavor from the opening of his order granting sanctions, where he says, this case should never have been brought. Its inadequacy as legal claim was evident from the start. No reasonable lawyer would have filed it. Intended for a political purpose, none of the counts of the amended complaint stated a cognizable legal claim. That's not how you want the judge's sanctions (laughs) order against you to start out. And he winds up awarding sanctions to 18 of the 32 defendants, a total of uh, $937,989.39, very precise, uh, jointly and severally against Donald Trump, uh, his lawyer, Alina Haba, uh, and her law firm. Jointly and severally means that each of them is on the hook for the full amount. That doesn't mean that people get to get multiple recoveries. It's just that whoever you can get it from, you can get it from. And if one of them doesn't pay, uh, too bad, so sad, the other one is on the hook for the full amount. And so before we get into the details of the order, how does that work with the joint and several liability? Do they get to negotiate amongst themselves about who has to pay? Can Alina Haba sue Donald Trump if Donald Trump doesn't pay any part of the order? Does it typically end up that each party sort of ends up paying equally, or how does how do they actually lay their hands on the money? Well, so often when you hit someone with joint and several liability, 
they're not all able to pay. They don't all have the money. And so often the person with the deepest pocket is the one you go after and you leave it to the people themselves to scramble and bite and kick at each other to try to get contributions. <laughs> and yes, there can be lawsuits seeking contributions among uh, the people who have been hit with joint and several liability, which of course just leads joyfully to more work for lawyers and uh, <laughs> more attorneys' fees. Uh, so it's it's a real mess, and it's it's not in a position you want to be in. Right. And so th these fees they basically amount to making the various defendants in this lawsuit whole for the fact that they had real expenses associated with defending the lawsuit, even though the lawsuit was very frivolous and very stupid. Um, they still had to file documents in court and they incurred legal expenses. And so I think it's important to note here that the, that the penalty here really just went to cover a large fraction of the expense that the uh, that the defendants incurred here, but it still seems possible to me that Donald Trump came out ahead uh, because he still you know he still caused a lot of trouble for these people he didn't like. He still probably caused them some real expense over and above this million dollars that they will be made whole for. And as Judge Middlebrooks describes in the order, one of the reasons he's so irritated with Trump is that Trump is using this lawsuit as a PR strategy, as a fundraising strategy. Literally, in in the cases of some other lawsuits, he discusses sending sending out fundraising emails saying, we just filed this lawsuit and give to our campaign to support us in our efforts against the deep state, blah, blah, blah. And so it's not clear to me, even though this is a big smackdown rhetorically, it's not clear to me that this is an effective sanction that would stop Donald Trump from wanting to do this in the future. Well, sure. Uh, I think you're right as to Donald Trump. However, as to Alina Haba, uh, I think she's in real trouble. This is the type of sanction that gets a state bar interested and involved. I mean, the, the judge here made a finding of fact that Trump and Haba knew or reckless in their disregard for the truth that uh, this complaint misstated facts, that it misstated public records like the Mueller report, that it contradicted things that Trump had admitted about uh, things like his ban from Twitter, uh, that it was inconsistent with the very documents that it cited. So a judge, a federal judge sanctioning an attorney a million dollars in, in an order that says basically you file a knowingly bogus lawsuit, that is the type of thing that can get your bar card pulled. So I think it is going to be a very effective deterrent uh, for people like her. As to Trump, uh, one asks whether or there are any effective deterrents. Uh, but I mean, a million dollars is a million dollars. So, and that million dollars, it's, it's notable, is very close to all the attorney's fees these 18 defendants asked for. That's somewhat unusual too. First of all, a million dollar sanction is incredibly unusual uh, from a federal judge. Uh, but on top of that, they asked for about a million 50,000 and he gave them 937,000, which is much less of a haircut than you usually get uh, asking for sanctions. Although wasn't there a self haircut? I mean, one of the things the judge goes through and describes is that virtually all of the attorneys uh, for the parties who are seeking sanctions here had already substantially discounted their usual rates. 
doesn't that mean that they're working more cheaply than they normally would on this sort of case? Yeah, but I mean, there's a little bit of razzle-dazzle to that, Josh. Uh, (laughs) Everyone talks about how they reduced their rates. And the truth is attorneys reduce their rates all the time as a marketing strategy or to get cases or because they want to work on a particular case. So that's a little less than it might seem. One of the complaints the judge raises here is that the filing that came from Alina Habba on behalf of Donald Trump was a shotgun pleading. What is a shotgun pleading? Shotgun pleading, and another word for it is boilerplate, uh, is just a, a document that just vomits forth all sorts of stock arguments and causes of action without any real regard to whether they apply to this particular case. So, you know, a shotgun pleading basically goes through a first-year torts handbook and and lists all the causes of action it finds <laughs> without any real analysis of why they apply. Here, the shotgun he seems to be talking about is a grievance shotgun of everything Trump was mad about, uh, about the Russia investigation is vomited for into this thing and portrayed as part of a RICO conspiracy. Notably here, the judge doesn't just rely on Rule 11, the Rule 11 of the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure, which is the the standard mechanism to get sanctions. Uh, It's an effective tool when it's used, and we complain about how it's not used enough, but it is limited uh, procedurally. What the judge says is, I've got to go beyond Rule 11 to my inherent power as a federal judge to issue sanctions for bad behavior. And he he talks about a lot of the precedent showing he can do that, and he says that this isn't just a Rule 11 situation because here we're confronted with law lawsuit that should never have been filed, which was completely frivolous, both factually and legally, and which was brought in bad faith for an improper purpose. What's remarkable about this order that you don't see too often is this is more than a sanction order that examines the particular case before the judge. It is a meta-commentary on Trump's litigation style. He talks about this being a part of a pattern of abusive lawsuits and threats of lawsuits, uh, including the the recent threats to the in the Pulitzer board case. Remember where Trump is mm-hmm. suing the Pulitzer board for refusing to withdraw Pulitzer Prizes uh, regarding reporting about him. Uh, he talks about the lawsuit against Twitter. Uh, he talks about all of Trump's litigation habits. He also talks quite a bit about, as you suggested, about the connection between the lawsuit and Trump's media strategy. So he sort of pulls aside the curtain that we pretend that these things are separate and points out what Trump and Haba were saying proximate to filing this lawsuit and after he dismissed it. He even gripes about how uh, Haba went on Fox and said, oh, he's just a Clinton judge who dismissed our righteous lawsuit. Um, Now, you've got a right to do that. You've got a First Amendment right to do that, although there are certain consequences for lawyers who bash sitting judges too hard. But it might play into a judge's assessment of whether or not you're litigating in good faith or bad faith. Right. Yeah. So that was interesting to me that he talks about all this litigation that's not at issue in this lawsuit. One one of those suits actually is also before him. The the lawsuit against the New York Attorney General, which he filed in Florida, is also before Judge Middlebrooks. But then he talks about certain other litigation not before him. And he's careful to say, these sanctions are not for those cases. I don't have some of these cases. And it's premature to make decisions about that other case that I do have. But it seems to 
to be sort of a suggestion, A, that, you know, there might someday be a sanction order in this other case before him. And maybe it's sort of a suggestion that other judges maybe should do what he's been doing here so that, you know, instead of $1 million would be a substantially larger figure than that. Yeah. And it also seems to be calling out Trump for litigating as part of fundraising strategy, as part of political strategy. And we've talked about how common that is, how often this performative litigation that's meant to rile up your base and get donations happens. And often judges just don't call that out. They engage in this fantasy that they're just commenting the four corners of the matter before them, isolated from politics and from media strategy. And, and this judge is sort of piercing that veil. What's the value in calling it out? I mean, we, we don't generally want judges to offer broad commentary, even incisive broad commentary about phenomena in society. I mean, I assume one purpose of, of calling it out would be essentially to encourage other judges to take similar moves to the one that he's taken here because that might discourage that. But I mean, I think you, you sort of – you don't want the judges in a broad argument with Donald Trump about – well, certainly about politics or even about the use of the courts, Right. I would disagree on the use of the courts. So whether or not the courts are being used for a legitimate purpose to resolve actual disputes between people is a legitimate area for judicial commentary and for orders weighing sanctions. You're not supposed to litigate for an improper purpose, for a bad faith purpose. You're not supposed to bring lawsuits that don't have factual or legal merit in order to make money or in order to get political power or votes. And that is a legitimate basis for federal judges to comment as part of their inherent power to supervise the operation of the federal courts. It just doesn't happen a lot. So if you've got something like this, this was a ludicrously performative lawsuit. This was a stupid, suitable for Alex Jones type list of fantasy grievances and conspiracy theories with Rico slapped on top, purely meant for politics. And when you abuse a federal court like that, it is appropriate, I would say, for the federal court to impose consequences on you and call you out for using the court improperly. You talk about the judge going beyond Rule 11 to his inherent power to impose sanctions. Could his inherent power have gone beyond awarding attorney's fees? Could he have awarded sanctions above and beyond that? Yes. Uh, and he can award sanctions that are, in effect, punitive, uh, that he thinks are necessary to punish and deter. But the attorney's fees tend to be the heartland of where judges go. And because litigation is so expensive, um, they are often vast. I mean, to any normal litigant, uh, this million-dollar order would be crushing, would be gigantic. Right. But this is not a normal litigant. No, it's not. And that's the problem. He's very prominent and very wealthy and has a very unusual ability to actually turn this sort of litigation into profit. And so it seems to me like if you wanted this to be a deterrent, not just against Alina Habba, but against him, one thing you could do is have a substantial punitive award. Yes. Uh, so once you start getting up into that range, then you're on less firm footing. The record of cases supporting you for being you know, punitive as opposed to restorative are less strong. And I think that he's thinking here not just about the effective deterrent, but also he wants to make sure he gets upheld by the 11th Circuit and he doesn't want to go out too far on a limb. So this is a strong, well-reasoned, explicit order that I think Trump and Hobb are going to have a very hard time overturning on appeal. But you could see how if he really did something that would be enough to deter Trump, like say $100 million, how that would be someplace where you're really getting into uncharted territory. 
Let's talk about Alec Baldwin. Oh, let's. Yes. Um, of course, there was the tragic event on the, the set of the film Rust where uh, Alec Baldwin fired a firearm, killed the cinematographer for that film. Uh, and there's been a lot of discussion of how it came to be that there was live ammunition inside that gun. Uh, and now Alec Baldwin is being charged with involuntary manslaughter by uh, state prosecutors in, in New Mexico. Uh, this is a fourth degree felony. Uh, apparently a, a maximum term of 18 months for this. And so I, involuntary manslaughter, my understanding generally is that's when you kill someone unintentionally, but in some way that is, is – is it a recklessness standard? What do you have to do in order to be guilty of involuntary manslaughter? So let's set this up by saying that that we're talking about what you have to do to be guilty of involuntary manslaughter in New Mexico. And this is something of a pet peeve, okay, because everyone talks about murder and first-degree murder and second-degree murder and degrees of manslaughter as if they're consistent across all the states. There are some consistent concepts across all the states, like premeditated murder or murder with aggravating circumstances or, you know, killing someone in the heat of passion. But they're often called different things in different states. So when you hear people bloviating about how this would be first degree murder anywhere, they don't know what they're talking about because it's called very different things. In New Mexico, and this is not unusual, involuntary manslaughter is killing someone uh, that without malice, but with some sort of level of culpability. The idea is that it's a... uh, unpremeditated murder, it's without malice, and it's committed either in the commission of an unlawful act not amounting to a felony. So if if you're committing a misdemeanor and you kill somebody, that can be involuntary manslaughter. Or if it's uh, in the commission of a lawful act, which might produce death without due caution and circumspection. So Mm -hmm. it's it's basically a criminal negligence standard, and you have to show in New Mexico and in many states for involuntary manslaughter that someone consciously disregarded a substantial risk to somebody else, that there was a willful disregard of the risk. So just to give you an idea of how it would get worse, intentional manslaughter uh, would be if you're in the heat of passion, you deliberately kill somebody, but you know it was uh, in an argument or it was self-defense, but not uh, adequate self-defense. You didn't meet the requirements for self-defense as a defense to murder, uh, but you, you were generally in a fight, something like w- that. Wouldn't a typical voluntary manslaughter situation be like you punch someone in a fight and your intention was to injure them but not kill them, but then you did kill them? Yes. Or you used excessive force in defending yourself uh, in a situation, something like that. Right. This in, involuntary manslaughter case would be, you know, I, nobody is contending that Alec Baldwin intended to kill the cinematographer of his film. It's that he caused her death and that he did so in a way that consciously disregarded a substantial and unjustifiable risk. Exactly. And here, of course, we get into a situation where Alec Baldwin has ignored me disregarded my advice and done exactly what we always say you should not do. Well, before we get into Alec Baldwin's public comments about this situation, how they might affect the prosecution, I I just want to ask sort of a broad question as someone who's been watching this case in the news and who is somewhat surprised that Alec Baldwin has been criminally charged here. Now, Alec Baldwin was a was a producer of this film. I assume that there was going to be some sort of civil liability associated with the fact that the film somehow live ammunition got in there when it wasn't supposed to be. And that's, 
you know, ultimately the job of the producer to ensure a safe set. But my understanding of this was basically that Alec Baldwin was under the impression that the gun he was holding did not contain any live ammunition. They had an armorer who was supposed to check the gun and ensure that it didn't contain any real bullets. Um, they had procedures that they were supposed to implement on the set such that it wouldn't be possible for there to be real live bullets to put in the gun. And that he, if he pulled the trigger of the gun, whatever he did with the gun, he did under the impression that it didn't contain live ammo. That's not good enough to ensure that he can't be criminally charged here. Because I would think that, you know, the while this is a, a, a terrible, disgraceful accident that may have involved some, you know, failures that are civil matters, I'm, I'm surprised that that could be a crime. Well, Josh, uh, generally, gun training involves telling people you never point a gun at someone and pull the trigger unless your intent is to kill them. You always assume the gun is loaded with live ammunition uh, because the way accidents happen is people think things are unloaded when they're not. And that might be a difficult thing to prove, but for uh, the fact that Alec Baldwin ran his mouth. So this is, this is in fact, what he said is intertwined with your question. So Alec Baldwin went on TV and told George Stephanopoulos, I would never point a gun at anyone and pull a trigger at them. Never, never. That was a training I had. You don't point a gun at me and pull the trigger. And that's consistent with safety training that people get and are supposed to get. And Alec Baldwin's been in a bunch of movies with guns. He's had that training before. And that's the type of proof you're going to use. Baldwin went on TV and claimed he didn't pull the trigger, that he never pulled the trigger. And here, uh, the FBI has analyzed the gun, come back and said this gun would not fire unless you pulled the trigger. Uh, a simple misfire without trigger application couldn't have happened physically. So by running his mouth, he first of all, he's locked himself into this story that he didn't pull the trigger. So he, he can't go back to the, oh, I thought it was loaded with blanks or unloaded. That's what I was assured. And he's admitted and trumpeted that he's had this training. So he would never pull the trigger pointing at someone like that. And he also made, uh, you know, the, the error in judgment, I would say, of suing people involved in the movie. He sued four people who he said were responsible for this happening, uh, for the trauma to him from having shot and killed someone. And he was sued twice, once by the family of the victim and, and once by someone else on set. And uh, so that opens him up to discovery. And now that he's charged with manslaughter, he's going to have to try to shut down those cases to have them stayed for now because he can't afford to be deposed in those and lock him in further to his story. But this is, again, this this was a extremely foolish thing to do, to go out and run his mouth about exactly what happened, uh, because it, it probably made it much easier for prosecutors uh, to think that they could convince a jury that he knew it was unjustifiable risk to take any real gun and point it at someone and pull the trigger, even if, you know, the, the procedure is supposed to be that it's supposed to be blanks. And by the way, one of the lawsuits against him alleges that basically there was no call to do that within the context of the movie, that there was it was not the procedure with the weapons for them to be pointed at anyone, and there was no trigger pulling in the scene that he was shooting. 
So all that put together is enough uh, that might convince a jury that he took a known unjustifiable risk when he pointed a real gun at someone and pulled the trigger. So my sense then is that you think that prosecutors are likely to have a fairly strong case here, because I know some of the coverage of this had this implication that basically that there's a in, in Santa Fe County that there is pressure to hold somebody accountable, uh, that when you have a high profile person who comes into I mean, this isn't this trial isn't happening in Los Angeles. You have a high profile person who comes in who does something very damaging, that there is a political impulse to try to bring charges. You, you think that this is this is not that sort of case. This is a case where it's actually quite likely that you could win a conviction against Alec Baldwin. Well, I think there are elements of both. Uh, there's certainly elements of, you know, the outsider, you know, the Hollywood bigwig. Alec Baldwin is quite liberal. He's known for being quite liberal. You know, he put, he, although it's a liberal county. Right. Uh, but the law enforcement is not <laughs> famously liberal there or anywhere else. You know, he's known for portraying, uh, Donald Trump on Saturday Night Live. And, uh, he's kind of a punching bag for the right. There's been huge pressure to do something. The reaction has very much been along political lines. But yeah, I, I think it would be an extremely hard case. But for his public comments and his admissions that he's made, um, with those, I think it's a, a triable case. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I would say maybe a federal prosecutor, if they had jurisdiction, might not risk it. But a DA would absolutely roll the dice on something like this. And, and then it's worth noting also that the armorer uh, who was supposed to be in charge of, of gun safety on the set, she's also been charged with involuntary manslaughter. And then there was the first assistant director who handed Alec Baldwin the gun. And that, that person has taken a plea deal uh, to one charge of negligent use of a deadly weapon. And so you have you have one it's, – it's obviously – it's not just the high-profile Alec Baldwin defendant here. You have a couple of you know much more rank-and-file people in, in the industry who are also involved in, in this disaster. And one of them has, has already taken a plea. Right. And that suggests we don't know for sure they might testify. We might find out more about the chain of events, about what he was trained to do or told to do and not, uh, that sort of thing. I mean, it's it's possible that he sincerely believed that there were not supposed to be no live bullets on set and he was just screwing around and he pointed the gun and he, and he fired thinking it would be a blank. And that can be involuntary manslaughter because uh, depending on the circumstances, it can be a unjustified risk. Uh, And I think most serious gun people listening to this would probably say it is an unjustified risk to point a real gun at someone and pull the trigger under those circumstances. And first of all, I want to thank you, Ken. Ken obviously is not a New Mexico practitioner and has had to do a substantial amount of research to be able to speak intelligently about this New Mexico criminal case. Do you have a sense if Alec Baldwin were to be convicted of this, he likely would get a custodial sentence for that? Well, the maximum sentences, $5,000 and 18 months. I'm not a a New Mexico practitioner. And uh, there are some weird elements to how sentencing works. But I am informed that a custodial sentence of some sort is likely. But uh, take that with a grain of salt that I'm getting at second or third hand. In, in that case, do you – I mean, is it surprising that Alec Baldwin is pleading not guilty at this stage? W- would it surprise you if this ends up going to trial? It's not at all surprising that he's pleading not guilty at this stage. The only way that wouldn't happen is if you had a deal in place before you were charged. 
whether or not he works out an agreement is another story. I think it's entirely possible that he'll work out something that will manage the risks and, um, you know, a non-custodial, perhaps misdemeanor to avoid the risk of going to trial and getting a felony. You know, the prosecutors get their pound of flesh and everyone goes away. And then really what happens is that that locks him in and makes him much more likely to be liable in the civil cases. Uh, But that's just about money. And so he can manage that. Finally, this week, let's talk about Brian Walsh. Um, who has been charged with murder, the murder of his wife in Massachusetts. His wife has been missing and there is no body that has been found of Anna Walsh. But prosecutors are confident that Brian Walsh killed Anna Walsh and they're confident in part based on his Google search history, which uh, as his wife was going missing, he was Googling topics such as how long before a body starts to smell, 10 ways to dispose of a dead body if you really need to. That, that one I find especially strange. It's like he was looking for a BuzzFeed listicle. <laughs> to help him figure out what to do with his his late wife's body. Can you throw away body parts? What does formaldehyde do? These sorts of things that he's searching on his child's iPad. And so first of all, I guess, you know, the um, it's more difficult to prosecute a murder case without a body than with a body. This sort of Google search evidence seems like the, the sort of thing that helps you do that if you're prosecutors. Yeah. I mean, he's not exactly Googling, if they never find my wife's body, can they prosecute me? But he might as well have. <laughs> like you said, you're, he's basically pulling up, uh, you know, BuzzFeed listicles on, uh, you know, hide your wife's dead body and we'll tell you uh, which office character you are or something <laughs> like that. And uh, yeah, it's incredibly incriminating. It's dream evidence for the prosecution. It's it's very difficult to believe that it's a coincidence. Uh, you know, the defense is probably going to have to be something like, well, maybe she died accidentally. Uh, she fell and hit her head and he panicked and then he Googled this stuff because he thought he would be blamed or, you know, those are the types of his defense lawyer, the types of things I, I think about going to uh, as you, how my, you might defend this. Although if you offered that defense, then that would imply that he knows where the body is and then he would have to lead authorities to the body and then there would be facts about what, you know, what they find with the body when they find it that presumably given that this is, you know, presumably a murder, presumably that evidence is unhelpful to you in your defense. Right. So the, the jury would be – I mean, the thing is he he wouldn't have to because he has a right against self-incrimination. So right. he would not be forced to. But it, you're right. That, that's what the jury would be thinking. If that's all – if that's your theory, where's the body? Why haven't you – why haven't you led the police to the body to help explain what happened? Uh, but, you know, this sort of thing has been happening for years. So all the way back to the Casey Anthony case, the, the infamous one, Google searches uh, have – figured into this and and increasingly, you know, tracking people's internet presence and what sites they looked at and what they did is a big part of many cases. Prosecutors are getting more sophisticated about internet use and they're increasingly incorporating it into their prosecutions. And and this sort of set of things is pretty much a dream because, you know, we know he's you have the exact text of what he said. You can't say someone got it wrong or made it up. Uh, you have the proximity and time. You've got all that sort of thing. And and they're probably as confident as they can be in a no-body case. So one thing that people have been asking about this Google search history is 
why doesn't Google call the police when it looks like somebody is about to kill someone based on what they are searching for on the internet? And I, you know, I think you know, I can think of some obvious reasons why the answer to that would be that that that's not a good idea. But it sort of it. A lot of people they look at this, they have this instinct like, why didn't somebody stop this man? As you can see in the search history, him you know appearing to plan a murder. Well, because it's not practical. I mean. You've probably seen the the YouTube comedy series, What If Google Were a Guy, you know, or it's a guy sitting at a desk and people are coming and asking questions. But that's <laughs> not what Google is like. Google processes with algorithms and, and programs, I don't know how many millions of searches an hour. They do not have someone sitting there monitoring or assisting with each one. And even if they had some sort of filtering system to look for this type of thing, and they might for some stuff like child pornography, those systems are notoriously unreliable and they're extremely difficult and expensive to monitor at the level at which it kicks up to a human being to look at it. So yeah, could they come up with a set of search terms that they think are problematical that then spits it up to a human level to review and then make a decision? They could. But uh, it tends to be extremely difficult to do, extremely expensive. It tends to throw out huge numbers of false negatives from people who are, you know, two friends watching Law and Order and they have an argument about something or, you know, reading a mystery book or or researching a mystery book or whatever causes all sorts of false negatives. It would, you know, probably barrage law enforcement with searches that just turned out to be, you know, weirdos thinking about things. And uh, all that makes it very difficult. Yeah, I mean, I think a couple of related examples here are instructive. I mean, when you you mentioned child pornography, and there are systems that Google and Facebook and various other platforms have that are designed to prevent that. But I mean, first of all, possession of child pornography is a crime. It's not evidence of a crime. It's not indication that there might be, you know, some crime to look into. It's the it, it is the crime. Um, and then also, those systems are completely overwhelmed in their capacity. The New York Times and other and other outlets have written about this that the the number of reports that that get produced and flagged for law enforcement exceeds their their capacity to follow up on it. And that's, you know, obviously considered a high priority for law enforcement. And then you have other moderation systems about other, you know, threats and hate speech and various things like that. And you do have automated systems around those. As you note, those systems produce a lot of false positives and a lot of false negatives. And the consequences there are not criminal consequences. The consequences are you get locked out of your account or your your account gets banned or that sort of thing. And so we have a fairly high level of tolerance for both false positives and false negatives on that because the stakes are lower. That's not the police showing up at your house uh, because you said something nasty about someone on the internet. I mean, excluding true threats and, and various things that can end up with law enforcement involved. So basically, these are really difficult technological, operational, and resource problems. Um, and sort of, you know, if you tried to predict who's going to kill their wife, you'd, you know, you'd predict 500 of the next 10 of those. Um, and, you know, you'd have people who are researching crime novels or who just have a morbid mind or who are interested in news stories like the Brian Walsh murder. And it could actually be quite difficult to distinguish those Google searches from the Google search of someone who is actually planning the commission of a crime. Right. And the likely result would be a flood of reports to law enforcement and things that would only get discovered after the murder. Uh, mm-hmm. So I bet you'd have a ton of cases where the murder happens and retrospectively they realize that a Google search was reported, uh, but no one followed up on it. Right. 
that's enough serious trouble for this week. Tell us what you think of this episode and send us any questions you have about what we've discussed here or other serious trouble that interests you. You can reach us by email. That's at ricohotline at serioustrouble.show. You can also join the conversation about this episode and more. Go to serioustrouble.show. Uh, and if you're a paying subscriber, you can participate in the comments section there about this episode and any future episode. We'd uh, love to hear your thoughts, questions, and suggestions. I'm Ken White. And I'm Josh Barrow. Serious Trouble is created and produced by Very Serious Media. That's me and Sarah Fay. Jennifer Swadek mixed this episode. Our theme music is by Joshua Mosier. This is Serious Trouble. More headed your way soon. <laughs> <laughs>